0: gentle listener and welcome to michael and ethan in room of scotch this is a podcast we talk about books we don't talk about scotch i'm michael that's ethan hi and we're two white guys talking about an african-american novel now you're caught up <laughs> <laughs> if you want if
1: you want to hear us check our privilege go back and listen to the last episode which sounds facetious and also it is but it's also not because like right if, this is this is this is part two? This episode says part two right there in the title. Yeah, pretty um, sure. So, like, not only for that, but for everything, you should probably go back and listen to part one if you want this mm-hmm. to make mm-hmm. any sense. You also should read the book, but we I right. don't know if we're... I'm getting out of order here.
0: That's okay. That's all right. Um, we're, uh, we're, we're drinking, uh, because it's Michael and Nathan in the room with Scotch, and we are in a room. Because it's not, like...
1: like flirting with stupidity enough that two white guys are sitting in a room for an hour talking about um an african-american novel we no do we're adding to alcohol be to it drinking yeah
0: exactly um so and and white man alcohol specifically what <laughs> alcohol cause white man alcohol because it's scotch
2: <laughs> uh,
1: So i mean there you go i think you just went, got too woke and like went back to sleep <laughs>
0: It sounds like a Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Thank you, Garfield. <laughs> uh, Alright. Yes, we're drinking. Ben Romach. Side Single Malt Scotch Whiskey. Ten years old. Um we're continuing to drink this. Ethan, would you like me to fill your glass?
1: Please fill my entire glass.
0: Well, I'm not going to do that. Cause it's a big glass.
1: It is a big glass, and I was hoping you kind of, kind of hoping you would.
0: There, how's that? That that will we'll start that'll, with that. That'll, gonna, that'll do for now. You know, for me.
1: All right. All right. Should I get my wife to read the rules? Yes, please. Because this is a very strict podcast. We follow rules. We, like every podcast, have to have rules. Mm -hmm. So, Karen, would you do me a favor and read the rules?
2: Rule one. Once the scotch is poured and the glasses clink, the scotch must not be mentioned at any time. If anyone mentions it, they lose. Rule two. No one's mother should be mentioned in any pejorative sense or any other sense not directly indicated by the text of the book being discussed. If any mothers are mentioned, the mentioner loses. Rule three. Ethan must never say the phrase first paragraph. If he does, he loses. Rule four. Michael must never say the words vampire, vampiric, or any derivative thereof. If he does, he loses. Rule 5, if anyone has to use the bathroom during an episode, he or she loses. However, this should not stop anyone from doing so, because this podcast is anti-UTI. Rule number 6, the wives are entitled to one glass of scotch or some equivalent beverage. Rule number 7, if 4 scotch-centric episodes pass with no losses, then everyone loses.
1: And what happens if someone breaks the rules?
2: If one person breaks a rule, they receive a punishment in the form of a verbal stunt chosen by the person who did not break the rule. All that being said, everyone, drink responsibly.
1: Yeah, Ethan. Yeah, Michael. Gentle Gentle listener.
0: listener. Thank Thank you, Karen. Uh, And now that we know the rules... We you will clink our glasses that don't actually clink because they are plastic.
1: Yeah, we are we are that awful. Mm-hmm. But yep. here we go. And here we go.
0: Look i am. Here's mud in your eye. Clank. Clank. <laughs> so, yes, we are still discussing the book, The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead. Um, and... We talked last time about the genre. We talked about only for like two minutes. Only, yeah, only a little while. We talked about the genre, just just a little bit. We talked about inheritance. We talked about um, the uh, the ongoing inheritance, uh, the 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 things that are culturally relevant and how culture is interrupted and changed and altered and uh, stopped and. I wonder in this book because it uh, the the chapters in this book uh, chapter parts you know whatever you want to call it what whatever you want to call them. the they're labeled not, portions they're not here.
1: formally labeled or like with section right as numbers titles. or anything like that but it they alternate so that's confusing
0: they alternate between an individual and a state or region because the last one is just the north whereas. Previously to that, we have Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, Tennessee, Indiana, and then the North. And those regions uh, trace the the progress of our main character, Cora, as she is fleeing from bondage uh, to freedom in the North. Um, but then, then you've got individuals here, and we get uh, little perspectives on them as we go uh, along here. Um, Ajari, who um, is the grandmother i believe i believe so yeah um of cora then ridgeway who's a slave hunter stevens um who was stevens was he another slave hunter
1: yeah i think so
0: um ethel who is uh, a woman in a house that cora stayed at in uh, north carolina uh caesar who was uh, a fellow escaped slave who brought cora along and then mabel um mabel was her mother yes yes yeah. it's been a while since i've read this but um so yeah. like some of the names specifically are well yes mabel was her mother
1: i never remember the names of anyone in anything um and i do count on you for that so sure that's where i am
0: um i i don't know that i'm prepared to do a full names with michael but uh here's maybe as good a place as any to talk about some of those names
1: i did hear you pause though to insert the one piece of editing that you do
0: (laughs) thank you for noticing yes it was there um i want to talk about two names in particular i could go on to probably some more if i if i looked at them again um but specifically the two names i want to talk about are the first two names you hear in the book um caesar yes and cora yes first thing to notice about these names they're both latin
1: yes um and of course I'm, I'm gonna try to sort of do this digression in as efficient a manner as possible yes please um but anytime you you know you're talking about the names of of slaves here mm-hmm. you're once again going to that idea of interrupted heritage or yes. uh, um, interrupted ancestry um because slave you know names that that slaves uh bore um were wildly contingent on just a vast amount of of different circumstances um just just you know many many different things um a lot of times it was just what name an arbitrary master gave you Mm -hmm. a lot of times it was um had to do with whatever family owned you Mm -hmm. um or sometimes slaves would just pick names and they'd just say right. it and there the, a lot of names may have been versions of um names that they had going back to africa in, in sure. some of the original you know whenever um someone was was taken over from africa that may have gotten incorporated and um it's it's again fits right into this this theme that we sort of ended on last time uh because it it's almost impossible to know in any given case unless there's a very direct like, Oh, I just heard the name Caesar one time and I liked it.
2: Right. Um, Mm -hmm.
1: Unless there's some piece of, of sort of historical uh, uh, testing along those lines. Like it's, it's virtually impossible to know um, Mm -hmm. where a name comes from. Um, And uh, you know, that, that even carries forward into uh the modern the modern era where i've i've known black people with last names um that started with mick or mac mm-hmm. m-c or m-a-c a traditionally irish or, or scottish name that um in at least one case that i know of you know they, they said yeah that traces back to an ancestor of mine who was a slave and just took the name of the the uh the
0: owners of the plantation mm-hmm yeah so, that, that understood. Um, the, these two names are fairly interesting. Caesar, of course, the, the king of um, the Roman world. I mean, king, but without actually being king. you know, he, 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 was, he was sneaky about how he called himself king. Right. So, he became emperor. Right. Um, yeah, and uh, what's, what's more interesting to me than the fact that you've got this abject slave who has the name of someone of, of royalty... Uh, um, is that it? Actually, uh, gives you a hint into how he is going to end. Oh, um, sure. I mean, if you think of Shakespeare with uh, Julius Caesar being uh, betrayed by a friend and ultimately, you know, defeated, killed, stabbed before he actually sees his vision come to fruition, um, or sees it part way to fruition. Anyway, yeah. So he partially escapes and then is killed. Right. To to give you a spoiler from. Or the book you've already read um so there's there's caesar uh, and then you've got cora and cora is the latin word for heart um which i think has uh, a number of implications here cora is um metaphorically designated as is a the the heart of the slave experience sure um yeah she she exhibits heart uh if you will um almost almost a a heart
1: that's sometimes seems to surprise her yes um yes there's there she she keeps finding herself making decisions that um are sort of sort of a uh, emotionally driven or driven mm-hmm. by by or towards sort of a, a a love or an emotional vulnerability right that seems like it should have been been uh um i i don't like the phrase but i also as well as metaphorically i mean it quite literally beaten out of her Mm -hmm. um somewhere along the lines sure which again goes back to that idea It, it now that i'm saying it out loud it gives it seems like it connects to that idea of the underground railroad as a metaphor for america's heart yeah you have this 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 in in the case of this book this literal network of of uh um that's supposed this network that's supposed to lead people to freedom um sort of hidden and concealed in the same way that like ideas were hidden and concealed in the in the uh, declaration of independence and in the constitution that Mm -hmm. will lead more people to freedom than even the creators of it knew um and that goes straight to uh uh, Cora sur- exhibiting these surprisingly sort of emotionally mm-hmm. loving, emotionally vulnerable connections, yeah, um, which connects. And I'm sorry to hijack your your segment here, <laughs> um, okay. but it connects also in my mind with something that you mentioned uh, last episode that I meant to pick up and just didn't. Um, but it's it's the idea of uh, that you you said w- when we were talking about the underground railroad mm-hmm. the, the the sort of making concrete of this of this metaphor um you mentioned that it, it exhibits an amount of playfulness and whimsy yeah um which i can't think of any other examples specifically off the top of my head but it does uh, um there's there's other examples of that throughout the book of playfulness even some of the linguistic stuff much as it's as in the example I gave at the very end of the last episode is sometimes used to point up the horror Mm -hmm. of certain things or the, the hypocrisy or um, other things like that. It's also um, it's used to uh, what am I trying to say? Um, uh, the, the, The playfulness of the language is, is still there. There's still a, a sense of play and a sense of of whimsy. That's not without its darkness, but it's mm. it's less bleak than you'd expect a novel like this to be. Sure. Um, like I had more than one person who you know friends who who read the back or who I talked to about it, who immediate, their immediate assumption was, oh well, I bet that one's an upper.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure.
1: You know, as in like it, it's it's undoubtedly bleak as as all get out. Um and I remember, you know, it, it's like just knowing the very limited amount of information they did, it's a it seems like a logical assumption, but my reaction was always no no. Yeah. It's it's less it's certainly not unbleak or no. un, untroubling. But it's but not it's, just depressing. Yeah, not in the way of like I don't know, it, uh, the sorrows of young Werther or hmm um certain works by authors who had much less call to create an entirely bleak
0: landscape <laughs>
1: but still managed to than someone writing about american slavery right um and so i think all of that is like the network of 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 connections that sure. that talking about cora as as the heart and then also as you may i may be stepping on you pointing out yeah. um caesar essentially i forget if he uses that exact word heart but he essentially says that that she's got something yeah she there, there's he,
0: some je ne sais quoi he that, picked uh, her out to re- she has
1: does he does he call her good luck am i remembering that right yeah now? he
0: says she's a lucky charm yeah exactly um um and and the 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 reason that he says she's a lucky charm is because her mother escaped her mother yeah. successfully escaped and was never caught you find out later the irony of that statement Right. Um, that her mother, yes, escaped, but died in the swamp and sunk down in the swamp and was lost to oblivion.
1: Two, but specifically and and crucially, because she um, exhibited a moment of heart herself. Yes. Um, that, that, and again, sort of, sort of another cruel irony of mm-hmm. of Cora's mother. Um, being that the thing that Cora had been most bitter about towards her all her life is the opposite, like the, the truth was that that was the one thing that she didn't do. And in not doing that, it got her killed.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: Um, because it was that decision to go back because she couldn't leave Cora that ended up getting her killed.
0: Yes, absolutely. I want to talk about Mabel, uh, Cora's mother in a minute. But um, connected sure. with these two names, being yes. both Latin names, um, that primed me to pay attention to a certain segment of things in the novel. Okay. Specifically mythological things. Yeah, Yeah. You, you don't need to save that page. That's okay. fine. Um, uh, and the mythological things I'm thinking of are minotaurs. <laughs>
1: oh, of course.
0: Um, because minotaurs come out as explicitly mentioned figures uh on a number of occasions um they're they're imprinted on the stocks of a slave who attempted to run away but was caught and he is subjected to a a horrific end sure um so there's there's that but then um the way the underground railroad is described and uh the way progress is described in here um progress for progress's sake Mm -hmm. is derided in this book
1: yeah because
0: If it's in the context of a labyrinth, which is the container for a minotaur, progress might not mean you're actually getting anywhere. Right. If you're moving forward, you might actually be moving backward. Doubling back on yourself. Yes, exactly, which is a fascinating way to describe this. And I'm trying to remember more specific ways that he did this. But you get the the impression that the flight north is not a straight line. Yes, it is a labyrinth.
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty explicitly yep. uh, brought up. Mm-hmm. Not not maybe not in one single sentence, but um, in a series of sort of echoing uh, statements by, especially by station managers and conductors. Sure. Um, what throughout the, the if you if you were to sort of isolate their statements, a lot of them would add up to the idea that yeah, this is not necessarily a straight line. Yeah, and that not necessarily any one person understands the whole of the mm-hmm. the route or the path.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. There are various branches, and everyone individually knows a piece of it. Yeah, um, no one person knows the whole route. Yeah, um, which is yeah ties into that whole labyrinth theme, and it it, it gets to this idea of um, well, if if, if we're talking about minotaurs in a labyrinth. If, if we want to blow this allegorically up, mm. the slaves are the minotaurs right. that have been put into this labyrinth, kept there by the white men. Right. And if you continue that theme, the minotaur was put into this labyrinth to keep it there, but it also needed sacrifices regularly to keep it sated. To keep right. it in there. Besides just the trap of the labyrinth that kept it from escaping, it needed something that made it pleasant for it to remain there. Sure. And that was something for it to hunt. That was the, the virgin sacrifices that were left there for it to hunt down and kill and eat. And so I'm detecting something similar going on in this novel that, you know, we talked about the birthday parties that were interrupted and things, but they had to have these slivers that were allowed them. Oh, uh, sure. Along with this, and with that, I think you know Cora's vegetable garden that she inherited from her mother uh, it was part of that. Uh, that you know the, you're allowed this. the The slaves. Th- this this was something that was that was new to me a little bit. Was that the slaves themselves were quote unquote landowners, right? That they they had a piece of land on the plantations that they were individually allowed to take care of, right. Korra had her vegetable garden and uh, that that strikes me as part of this this sacrifice that was given to them but even there um, it wasn't so pure a sacrifice as as might otherwise uh, have been anyway beyond that too then you've got this idea that uh, uh, they're, they're trying to escape this labyrinth and as it goes Cora questions this uh, when ultimately she comes to this question when is the cage? More desirable than escape, right? Well, and and that
1: that uh, dovetails also with a slightly different take on that I think can coexist, but it's a, a slightly different take on the uh, idea of um, why, as you put it, the the slaves themselves could be landowners, mm-hmm. um, and it it uh uh always. The the brings what it brings up to me is a quote um, that I read a long time ago from Noam Chomsky, um, who said the the way to keep a population um, compliant, I think, was the mm. word he used, was to allow a very small spectrum of acceptable opinion, but to allow a very lively debate within that spectrum. Sure, and. Um, the idea, and it may have been expressed better in context of slaves and slave owners, any of a number of, of other places that I'm not familiar with, but um, that's what, it, what what occurred to me here is It's a very similar idea where, um, say you have 10 slaves that you want to keep sort of... Uh, busy and and compliant and you know keep them from sort of especially specifically um uniting together to go Mm -hmm. against you as the slave owner Mm -hmm. right what you do is you take those 10 slaves and you give them nine plots of land and you tell them it's up to them to figure out how to distribute these plots of land right um because then the time that they're not working for you they're going to spend uh sort of fighting amongst themselves and that may be sort of a a slightly cheesy and simplistic um way of of explaining it but um i think that's a very real yeah motif throughout the book and i think i think it's very very real with you know how slavery played out over the course of american history is you would give you would give slaves sort of these scraps but you'd let them fight over the scraps and, you know, they, they accomplished a dual purpose. You'd um, have slaves who, uh, you know, they, they really valued the things that they were given enough that it, it sated them to um, and, and prevented them from trying to... Uh, you, you know to, to uh break down sort of the system that they were literally trapped in mm. um and so you the the idea that that i think you're getting at that i'm getting at here is if you make the cage just comfortable enough yeah. it becomes a very real question of when is the cage more desirable
0: yes absolutely and um, blake is is one of the slaves that comes in and uh steals cora's garden and it becomes a debate between them but then that's yeah. also put in the context, interestingly, of when she ultimately decides to agree to run away. Um, this is far before she met Caesar. This is put into the backdrop there, but it's it's defining for her characteristics as to when she ultimately does agree to run away. Yes, and I think it is ultimately to the point that she, well, she's she's described as as crazy at that point. She's consigned to hob, uh, this this. Sect, section this this hut in the in the slave encampment yeah in the, in the on the plantation that is designated for the crazy slaves <laughs> essentially um, yes and she's consigned there after her confrontation with Blake um, she smashes this doghouse that he's built on her vegetable garden um, and anyway that that that's you know connected with this whole idea of the you know the opiate of of those masses. Um, right. That uh, she she goes crazy ultimately. She's she which to be crazy is to be outside of the social norms of whatever culture you're in. Right. And so she has essentially already left the plantation mentally. Right. At that stage, and so that the the question that she comes back to, of course, she comes back to it after she has already started to run away. Right. Um. And, but yeah. Uh, it's, it's just an interesting mix of things, uh, with this, this idea of the labyrinth and the escape, but, you know, when do I just be content with just staying where I am? Right. And there are certainly places along the way where she can't just be content. And it's surprising how she remains long, um, uh, for a longer time in those places. North Carolina is the one specifically I'm thinking of, which is the worst, um, of all of them where she's stuck in this little cupboard in the attic. Uh, right. And yeah. through the slats she can see when other black people are, are hanged and, you know, put on mock trial and tortured and and all these different things. That I mean, how can you be content just staying there? But she stays there for such a long time.
1: Right. Though, you know, that's uh, there's there's a couple continuum continue mm-hmm. continuai going on here. Continua. Well. Um. Thank you. Uh. Th- where, you know, the it's that that particular habitation, I guess, is is super high on the on the uh, unbearable. Oh, yeah. Spectrum, but it's also super high on the what else are you gonna do spectrum. Yep. <laughs> um. Like she she really is the most trapped in that situation. Like her her, and- her options are the fewest right
0: and that's something this book does amazingly well is just communicate that idea of you need to get out but you can't right and and it does that in multiple places north carolina is maybe the most vivid
1: yeah um but north carolina again being the most vivid it casts a shadow on sort of um the other places where that's the case Mm -hmm. even even when she's in south carolina which to me is like one of the most fascinating uh, and possibly easiest to overlook sections of the book. Um, It's, it's just a, it's still a prison, but it's, it's a prison whose yard is big enough that you might not notice the walls. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, you know, the, the contrast between surface level wise, the contrast between North Carolina and South Carolina is, you know, pretty vivid um that that uh uh you know one one went the the route of toleration and the other went the route of of sort of extreme uh repression or oppression Mm -hmm. um but at the same time i don't i think it's a distinction among prisons especially when you have this this idea of a government program meant to um excuse me framed in the language of freedom meant to sterilize black women mm-hmm. um which yep. is i don't know enough of the history of south carolina specifically or these matters generally to know how close to history oh. that particular geography and section is no but that plan is real but that plan is utterly real yeah and, and <laughs> manifested itself in multiple places across america especially yep. post slavery yep. um including in the north like the north oh, yeah. is, is no uh, exception to this nope. um which you know, from from our government uh experimenting on black men and women you know when they to uh in clinical trials that violate every norm of mm-hmm. um how you ethically experiment on human beings um to you know many other like pushes to uh, uh encourage um you know black black people specifically to uh be sterilized in one way or the other like um that that is something that has echoes throughout american history and here it's yeah. like i mentioned in the last episode i used the the phrase the word telescoping um, it takes a lot of a lot of diverse but very real things and sort of telescopes them into one specific like set piece, um, yeah, that shows the the poetic truth of what's happening, um, right. Rather than but but pointing towards the uh, uh, literal tr- and historical truth,
0: right. Um, yeah, and that. <sighs> Ugh, I'm, I'm getting mad <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no that that, that the, the the plan in south uh south carolina that that is very real you know that before you come to realize that it's it, it's almost to the point of oh i wish she could have stayed there right because it's so pleasant but then you find out that it's just a, a halfway pleasant cage and it's just as bad, if not worse, as the rest. And with that aspect of the sterilization of the women, it ties into that same theme of inheritance. Yes, that we're talking about that that you know Cora ultimately does proceed to and I, I don't actually know if it's explicitly stated that she is pregnant at the end or has a child at the end. Um I think, I think it's maybe, stated that she's pregnant. Yes, I think so. Yeah, I think I think it does. Anyway, um, but it, it you know tied with that, that same same theme that there's something to be passed along, and if there is no there are no descendants, then there you can't pass it along. Right. So there there are essentially two ways to cut that off, uh, cutting off the identity here, and it's cutting it off at um, the one who inherits it. You know, cut them off from the ones who came before, or cut them off from the ones who are coming after, and stop the ones coming after. Right. Um, and and both of those are exhibited in this novel.
1: Yeah, and and once again, you know, this is this is something that's endemic in American history. Um, I'm I'm jumping the gun a little bit for our next episode. <laughs> uh, but, um, the uh the you know to essentially do exactly what you just described to Native American tribes. Yeah. Um, our government uh separated native american children from their families yep. um they they uh they would take them wholesale from their families put them in boarding schools and um they they in those schools they were punished for speaking their native languages they were indoctrinated with a with a certain a very specific view of both american and world history that um had less to do with reality than with uh what the uh the indoctrinators sort of wanted them to think history was um you know and uh i think colson whitehead actually has another novel about something similar happening um Um, yeah the the nickel boys Boys, advertised i I assume neither of us have read this one but um There's a, it's a story about two boys sentenced to a reform school in Jim Crow era, Florida. Okay, so I don't know for sure if if that's the exact thing I was just talking about, but, um, you know, reform schools and and elements of the criminal justice system, for that matter, have also been um, sort of used throughout American history on minority groups, including uh, black people, including Native Americans, as another way of doing this, of cutting off. um heritage and inheritance
0: um yeah definitely and yeah so that that's that's part of what we see in in this novel um i'm trying to decide if the point i want to make next or the question or the 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 course i want to go down next is is more connected now than anything else so do you have anything more you want to say on this okay because i want to tie this in um it's it's a fascinating section of this novel that um i read three or four times and i'm still not totally sure i have a firm grasp on everything that's going on here but i think it's connected in a sense and it's about mabel okay it's about cora's mother and we get this little section on cora's mother um it lasts one two three four five four and a half pages uh j- that's just about her escape um and it starts in this section on mabel on uh page three or er, uh 297 the first and last things she gave to her daughter were apologies <laughs> um which is again colson does a great job of just first lines in general yeah. i mean yeah. and they continue but um she describes the apologies that uh, she gives to Cora and the first apology she gives is for making her Uh uh-huh uh and specifically making her because she's going to be born into a context of slavery into a context of not having anyone um and especially that uh you know she's going to to leave her too that's that's you know the this the next thing that she gives her is is when she leaves and leaves her alone um but uh, she apologized for making her astray. Is is, is what it says. Um, the then when she she goes she goes into the swamp uh, to to escape and she's running and as you've already alluded to she had to go back. She had to go back. She had yeah. to go back for Cora and that's yeah. that's the heart again that that comes through here. But then she dies, and I want to go over her death here. Uh, I, I, I want to quote this a little bit in in detail before before we talk about it sure. here. The, it's five or six paragraphs. Some of them are very small. Uh, so, she had to go back. The girl was waiting on her. This would have to do for now. Her hopelessness had gotten the best of her, speaking under her thoughts like a demon. She would keep this moment close, her own treasure. When she found the words to share it with Korra, the girl would understand... There was something beyond the plantation, past all that she knew. That one day, if she stayed strong, the girl could have it for herself. So she's laying the foundation for a possible inheritance for Cora. The world may be mean, but people don't have to be. Not if they refuse. Oh, I forgot about that line specifically, (laughs) but uh, mm, we'll come back. Um, Mabel picked up her sack and got her bearings. If she kept a good pace... She'd be back well before first light and the earliest risers on the plantation. Her escape had been a preposterous idea, but even a sliver of it amounted to the best adventure of her life. Mabel pulled out another turnip and took a bite. It really was sweet. The snake found her not long into her return. She was wending through a cluster of stiff reeds when she disturbed its rest. The cottonmouth bit her twice in the calf and deep in the meat of her thigh. No sound, but pain. Mabel refused to believe it. It was a water snake. It had to be. Ornery but harmless. When her mouth went minty and her leg tingled, she knew. She made it another mile. She had dropped her sack along the way, lost her course in the black water. She could have made it farther. Working Randall land had made her strong. Strong in body, if nothing else. But she stumbled onto a bed of soft moss, and it felt right. She said, here. And the swamp swallowed her up. And that's the end of Mabel. She chooses to die in that specific place. Right um okay so a couple of things that line that i just had an epiphany about there the world may be mean but people don't have to be not if they refuse that's something that you know maybe we'll talk about more when we get to our next book as well sure but this this idea of um um choice comes out in here yeah um and that's a sub theme that runs through the entire novel yeah the idea of choice if if people choose not to be mean like Mm. the world is they don't have to be which it begs an interesting question here can the niceness of people overwhelm the mean world and and overturn it and fix it Uh, or is the world going to remain to be mean just with maybe some better people in it see i think that's a valid question but i don't think that's what that statement is about sure
1: i think that statement is about the fact that you can't know
0: the answer to that question Okay, that's, that's more or less what I was getting at. can
1: still choose yeah. to not be one of the mean ones.
0: Right, and, and I, I don't necessarily mean it to be fatalistic um, or, or see it as, as fatalistic, but I, I think it does have that sliver of hope in it that um, whether or not the world is mean, you don't have to be. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but then the death of, of Mabel here. It, did anything stand out to you, Ethan, about her death here? Um... I don't remember what stood out to me when I
1: first read it. The thing that stood out to me just now was the snake and the, uh-huh. um, th- there's sort of an Edenic quality to this uh-huh. passage. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, the idea of a, of a snake biting a woman and that becoming, uh-huh. a, uh-huh. um, yeah.
0: Yep. Well, and what happened right before the snake bit her?
1: Oh, she she ate a fruit.
0: She took a bite of a flippin' fruit.
1: Yeah. Okay. Which I mean is a turnip a fruit? It it doesn't matter. Um, but turnip, as turnip. if to as if to emphasize that she, she it it it's it, specified as being very sweet, sweet like a
0: fruit. Yes. Yeah. Um. No. It's it's very it. it that's not an accident. He he's yeah. he's describing the fall here. Here's what I want to ask you, Ethan. Why? Well, that's what I would have liked to ask
1: you. <laughs> okay, because I don't know. Um, the only connection my brain is making right off the bat is the idea that of this this uh, sequences uh, placing in the structure of the book because, Cora's uh-huh. um, uh, relationship to Mabel is quite well delineated by this point. Because like mm-hmm. you said, this is, I forget what page. Um,
0: well, that's in the 300s. We're turning over 300 now.
1: Yeah, uh, that that section turns us over over past page 300, and this book is like 315 pages long. Yep. So, um, you know, most of what is going to happen is has happened already. Um, and I do want to get to that la- very last section before we quit here. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but... Uh, Cora's relationship to her mother, which in the in the way that you know um, people who have lost parents at a young age one way or the other is largely about Cora more than it is about her mother um, though not completely of course but uh, her her you know relationship to her mother you might characterize, most simply as bad.
0: Yeah. It's certainly
1: more complex than that. And it certainly is complex. Yeah. But it's also bad. Mm -hmm. Um, Cora essentially pins on her mother, all the sort of bitterness that um, her life and circumstances have led her to feel. Um, Yeah. And you know, the thing is again with Colson Whitehead constructing very believable psychological traps um, mm-hmm. you can, as the reader, you can completely understand why Korra would feel this way about her mother. Oh, Essentially, sure. she feels that her mother made the made the bargain to abandon Korra Definitely. in order to pursue a life of freedom because um, without abandoning Korra, she would have had a far lower chance of attaining that freedom. Korra, of, of course, assumes that uh her um uh mother got away and Mm -hmm. and and is living some life of freedom and
0: occasionally and is is never corrected on that.
1: yes no the there's no there's no um uh parallelism to 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 uh sort of you know, poetically make Cora see the the error of her ways. No, it's only a dramatic irony where only the reader gets to exactly,
0: and it l- is left at a dramatic irony, which which uh, I would argue that the fact that it is left at a dramatic irony and is never revealed to the main character excludes the possibility of tragedy.
1: Sure, um, if we were gonna do a genre argument, which I thought you we're said done we with, didn't with didn't that. Didn't want that. to do anymore. We're not doing an it. We're not doing it. Ago. Okay. Um, <laughs> You're not wrong, though. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, well, and also Cora lives at the end, so that also... Right, that's... We're not doing this! We're not talking about genre! Um, So, what I was going to say is something.
0: (laughs) Well, that's good. Okay,
1: so Cora, yeah, Cora, you know, occasionally in Cora's head, you know, she constructs this, this life for her mother, this... Yep. You know, happy ending in Canada that she sort of hopes her mother uh attained but also and especially as Cora gets older which she doesn't get that old through the course of the narrative no but somewhat older um Cora's uh, thoughts turn increasingly bitter yeah and it's almost I I again I forgot my copy and I haven't I've it's been a little while since I read it but I suspect that the last time that Cora thinks about her mother is the bitterest Thought she has about her in the book, and then the next thing about Mabel is this section mm-hmm. from her point of view. Um, I suspect that that's true.
0: I, I think you're right, and I, I would have to look again. But um, um,
1: so yeah. the point being that uh, if you if you sort of put stock into this, the idea that this is some original sin imagery, mm-hmm. um, it's the idea that. Uh, the thing that we think is the original sin isn't necessarily the original sin. Sure. Um, And I think that that ties into a lot of the uh, uh, there's there's a term that I've seen like black activists use called good white people Mm. and without, to, to vastly oversimplify what I think is a fairly complicated term, it's essentially white people who think they're doing good to black people when they're Um, not in some way either not necessarily that they're actively working against them though sometimes maybe yes but um all otherwise that they're the thing that they think they're doing that is good is not actually sure is either unhelpful or actively anti-helpful sure um and so i think that there's some of these passages between you know the kindly doctor in South Carolina mm, trying mm-hmm. to talk Cora into her own sterilization, um, and even arguably some of the the people who show up in North Carolina or maybe some of the station masters, um, people who think that they're that they're doing good but are actually either perpetuating an evil situation or. Just simply are not actually doing any mm-hmm. good. Um, that that somehow, and I'm not exactly clear on what the what the connection is, but that somehow uh, this idea of the the original sin is not what you think it is ties into some of that. Yeah. though because it's Cora and not you know some some white person, um, I think there may be more to it than that. But that's. Sure. That's as far as I can get, sort of... Because I have been thinking about this uh, in some ways. So both as far as I've been thinking about it and also off the top of my head right now. That's sure. Just, that's as far as I can get. Sure. Um,
0: and and I, don't, I don't necessarily have a full answer myself. But uh, it, it occurs to me that it, it, it's tied to this same idea of inheritance. Yeah. That original sin is itself... An inheritance, uh, and this this also comes right on the heel of Mabel herself realizing that as a mother, she is supposed to provide some sort of inheritance to her child. She says, right. "You're supposed to pass on something useful to your children." Right. Uh, and then she gets this same uh, fall uh, that uh, that is a result. She's she's undone by a snake after taking a bite of a fruit. Right. Uh, whether a turnip is a fruit or not doesn't matter. Um, which of course the
1: idea of original sin itself is a sort of inheritance
0: idea yes yes exactly so that, that it's it's then something that's passed along uh and and what what cora is left with, with from mabel is the idea of escape yeah this is brought out in the very first chapter quote-unquote chapter <laughs> that uh, you know her her grandmother is the one who in her doesn't want to run away she's the one who says no right Uh, But then the one who does want to run away is Mabel, her mother. She would never have made it to freedom at the end if it weren't for her mother running away. Right. And so she does leave some sort of inheritance here. And so I'm wondering if Colson Whitehead isn't uh, effecting some sort of reversal of the fall here. Okay. um, In the idea that Mabel made this sacrifice so that Cora would be free. Okay. Not necessarily intentionally. Like, circumstance played a part in here. But the fact that Mabel died and was therefore never found, that she could never then communicate with Korra either. Sure. Left Korra up to imagine wildly that she had escaped and reached the land of freedom completely. And had completely run away, therefore motivating her to do the same. The only problem with that idea... Yeah.
1: Or potential problem, I guess, is if you imply that that's any intentionality on Mabel's part. That oh, sure. Mabel is intentionally making some sort. Of, well, she is making. She's intentionally making a sacrifice so yeah. that Cora could be free. But it's but the sacrifice she ends up making is not the one. It's not intentional
0: that she intends I to mean- make, and. It does which, leave some which, of her choice still in in, in her favor. She cho- chooses where to die ultimately, right? But that has nothing to do with Cora. Not necessarily. No, it's it's all in the context of her running back to Cora. Certainly, but the only the
1: again the only people who know the full extent of the situation of mabel's sacrifice and the consequences that it has for cora Mm -hmm. is us are us however the only people who know are are we only (laughs) we know the full circumstances here. right we are the only ones as the audience as the readers who get to know both all of all of mabel's decisions and their immediate consequences for Mabel and her choices mm-hmm. from there, and the consequences that those decisions have for Cora. Right. Um, n- no one, including Mabel, knows the full extent of how this is going to pan out. Well, yeah,
0: and, and I don't think that excludes the possibility that this is uh, essentially leading to that same sort of reversal that, um, it, it, well, it's part of that whole dramatic irony thing again, that you know we yeah. know this, the characters don't but the fact that we know it and the characters don't and it ultimately does lead to cora being free points to me to the idea of this being a comedy ultimately that it is you know <laughs> whoa okay. okay yeah like not not You're... not a straightforward comedy here but like the idea that in 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 the sense that that there's You're... a happy ending you know so they're...
1: when i did parliamentary debate in uh-huh. uh college there was a whole, you know, of course, Parley is very, very structured. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have opening statements and main arguments and rebuttals and closing statements. Um, and there was a very specific rule that you were not allowed to introduce a new <laughs> argument in your closing statement. And time wise, as we draw close to the end of this episode, I feel you have, have I broken that rule. <laughs> you have broken that rule. <laughs> Which obviously is not one of the very strict podcast rules. No. But does feel like exactly like a <laughs> violation still that you have done in introducing a whole new thing that we have to spend an hour arguing no! about. No! When not only is it the closing statements, but one and a half
0: episodes ago
1: you said we were done talking about genre. I know
0: we did. I know okay i'm just gonna leave that tantalizingly in the air okay there. you I, talk about the end of the book
1: well okay i i do just want to want to respond to that real quick okay and i think the only two options are the less than a minute that i'm about to say or we do an entire third episode right this. but to say that i'm comfortable with it being a comedy in the same sense that dante's the divine comedy
0: is a comedy? That's, that's what I mean.
1: And holy crap! Did I just like think of another work of literature I'd like to map this one onto?
0: Yeah, I know. Ah. I, I had that thought initially, but I got lazy. <laughs>
1: yeah, well, in the sense that again, we now have to have one additional episode uh, arguing about whether this is a comedy, and one additional one where we read this mapped onto *Gulliver's Travels* and *Dante's The Divine Comedy*. Right, um, but. In the yeah, also in a more classical sense, the the uh, the definition of comedy is where the main character gets a happy married ending. at the end right. slash has some other sort of socially aligned ending. Mm-hmm. Um, marriage is, is of course the classical one in the sense that a marriage is someone's integration into sort of upright society. Mm-hmm. Um, and let's talk about the ending of this book, because you yes, could please. argue that that is in a sense what this is, but only in a very contingent and very American sense and only in a very American sense from the from the period that this book takes place in.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um Yeah. Do you what what are your thoughts about the ending? I
0: want, I wanna start by pointing out um you know the the Colson Whitehead does this thing where he puts uh, little, like, flyers at the start of each yeah. section. Um, some some sections. Like Isn't it every o- other? I think it is every other. It might be... might be more? No, it's every other. Yeah, It's the ones that are place-specific. Yeah. Uh, where it's, like, um, here in, in, I think it's North Carolina. Yeah, North Carolina. South Carolina. $30 reward will be given to any person who will deliver to me or confine in any jail in the state so that I get her again a likely... Yellow Negro girl, eighteen years of age, who ran away. Blah 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 blah. Okay, yeah. So it's wanted. Horrifyingly
1: places. enough, uh, could have been utterly, completely ripped from real American and, history. And no honestly,
0: I, I I would not be surprised if ninety percent were completely ripped from yeah. historical.
1: Again, I haven't done the legwork to know. No, I haven't. If they're if they're not, they're.
0: I wouldn't be surprised to believe an that they are utterly absolutely... accurate yep, reproduction. Exactly. But this last one on page 304, it says, Ran away from her legal but not rightful master. Fifteen months past, a slave girl called Cora of ordinary height and dark brown complexion has a star-shaped mark on her temple from an injury possessed of a spirited nature and devious method, possibly answering to the name Bessie. Last seen in Indiana among the outlaws, outlaws of John Valentine Farm. She has stopped running. Rewards remain, uh, remains unclaimed. She was never property. December 23rd. Um, so it's it's a reversal of all of those wanted posters. That this is the, the opposite of a wanted poster. Yeah, for This sure. is just a, a declaration of her freedom. Yeah. Uh, and and it, I, I don't know if I can think of a better way to put it. Because it's not saying now she's free. It's saying she has always been free. Right she was never allowed to be kept a slave right but now the reality has caught up with the truth (laughs) right
1: i would like to do an aside here okay and just mention that there's whenever we do any book there's always one major thing that like we could have spent 20 minutes talking about that we don't get to oh yeah um like just for whatever reason two hours is is not Not enough enough to cover everything even in a book i mean 300 pages is not Not the slimmest book but it's also by no means huge but even in a book this size um due to density due to our propensity to ramble on whatever you want (laughs) to whatever you want to call it um there's just never enough time to hit even (laughs) even in sort of a cursory manner all the things we should hit and so that one for this pair of episodes is john valentine farm
0: yeah um we we honestly could have gone section by section in here this, oh, this yeah. might have been one where i would have been more inclined to go just straight through the book i mean by, I've already, by section you,
1: yeah but and we, i mean i've already outlined how this could have been one of our four episode mondo book sure arcs which I do feel like I say about most of our books, but...
0: Yeah, um,
1: we could do that with a lot of the books we can I do. mean, you with any work of literature dense enough, you could probably do that. But, like, this one, out of all of the shorter books that we've done, lends itself the most well to it. Yeah, sure. So,
0: that that said... So, I've said my initial phrasing on this, this end section here, sure. Ethan, and I want to give you a chance to, to champ that bit. Well... The thing... I'm
1: just gonna... Because, t- again, we could do half an hour just on these last... Whatever, it's not a long section. Five pages or whatever. Like, maybe um, nine. <laughs> yeah. But the thing that jumped out at me about this is that... This section is that it's the most poetic section, I think, in the uh. novel. And I don't mean that in a prose... In, in terms of prose style. Sure. Um, I mean it in terms of structure. Like, this last section really has the structure of, like, a William Blake, like, heavily symbolic poem where abstract ideas are embodied, but only mm, in such mm-hmm. a way that, like, just a scratch at their surface will reveal the abstractions within. Um, and specifically what I'm talking about is what stuck in my mind about this section, which, again, there's so much I could, I could say about it, is that the... the sort of three wagon trains that cora or three wagons rather that cora encounters mm-hmm. when she encounters this wagon train um i can't remember thank you what the first one was um okay so she right at, i guess this is right at the very end i'd forgotten that some of the Last stuff with, like, Stevens and stuff is in this... Oh, yeah. ...in this section, but... Um, ...right at the very end, she encounters these three wagons on a train going west. Um, and the first one is white people, um, who regard her neutrally and pass on. That's an yes. almost direct quote. Um, the second... The second wagon in the train is, uh, redhead... Driven by a redheaded fellow with Irish features. Um... Now, here's one aside I want to make real briefly is um, I appreciated the handling of what I could hopefully not too offensively call the Irish question in this novel, (laughs) Um, because there is a historical reality of what some people would call Irish slavery Um, some people contest that terminology because of the the loaded nature of the slavery word in American history. But, Mm -hmm. um, and I I think that's, that's a valid debate to have, but um, it is true that Irish people were brought over and taken advantage of and often used um, in the place of black slaves. Um, Now the troublesome part about this fact is that often it gets brought up by at at this point in 2019 by people who would like to deny or at least mitigate the history of black slavery essentially Mm -hmm. by saying white people were slaves too my irish ancestors blah 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 um and it's completely invalid to uh make that equivalence yeah um there's there's a whole you know question of scope that is uh uh you know completely the balance is is completely off but also at an even more basic level my ancestors being slaves does not make your ancestors not slaves (laughs) or in any way affect the history and the effect um that that has had let alone the fact that um, you know, not without some some uh, trauma, but the, the the Irish population was able to integrate into the white population, in the way that a, a way that, that black people um, were not able to. So, mm-hmm. you know, I I I don't want to make that sort of false equivalence, but. Um, you know, there there's an acknowledgement that yeah, Irish Irish people suffered too. Yeah. Um. Without without giving any credence to some of the more like wackadoodle uh, uh, arguments that get mm-hmm. made regarding that. Okay. So that said, mm. we have the Irish people in the second wagon, um, and the the Irish uh, man driving the second wagon says, "You're a sight. Do you need something?" And then she sh- course shakes her head. I said, do you need anything? Uh, Cora shook her head again and rubbed her arms from the chill. So both, in a sense, both of these these first two wagons with white people in them, in them are doing the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. Like the first one just doesn't like, like get at her for being black, which is like, yeah. you know, better than some other white people have been doing. But it's also just like the bare minimum. Mm hmm. Um, the Irish person sort of offers her comfort, but if she's rubbing her arms and like shivering, you know, he can clearly he's, see he's... that she does need something, but he's, it's, it's sort of a display of help without actually mm-hmm. wanting to help, um, is the easiest way to interpret that. Um, and then the third wagon, of course, has a, has a, uh, a black man driving, um, mm-hmm. who's eyes are kind um uh the smoke from his pipe smelled like t- potatoes and cora's stomach made a noise which i think potatoes become a big thing on the on the valentine farm if i'm remembering right they it sounds right yes potatoes become throughout throughout this book potatoes become sort of a symbol of at least a bare minimum of uh yeah self nourishment, reliance and nourishment yeah, yeah. um and, of course, she climbs on the wagon, and I'm not going to read the, the... It's about... It's slightly less than a page worth. That's the rest of the end of the novel. Yep. Um, but it's clear that the two of them have similar scars and similar experiences, mm-hmm. and they, they sort of travel together. Um, and the, the way that I see this ending, these last few pages, um, has to do with something that there are a few comments about throughout the course of the novel. And I want to be very careful because I almost certainly will say something offensive in the next couple minutes. <laughs> um, and I want to make it clear here that I don't want to. Okay. Um, but there is a, an argument in a few places throughout this novel that um, I have heard from other like black activists that I've either seen, interviewed, or, or read. Um, and it's the idea that Black people as a community need to be responsible for their own um Mm. the the nineteenth century term is uplift. And I I don't know if that's an ugly term, but I don't know what other term to use. But need to the the idea that if white people come in and sort of help the black community to get on its feet, that's Mm -hmm. albeit a very benevolent form of racism. Mm -hmm. Because you still have black people as beholden to white people um mm-hmm. and of course there's a there's a, a question there of you know do you try to create an entirely new country or like section of the country for black people um experiments have been made with that over the course of history and they usually have not gone super well as i understand though mm-hmm. I, I don't know the history of all of all of those sorts of colonies but um but i think this may be sort of and again, I'm speculating. I'm just trying to d- listen and get what I can out of this this novel as a whole. But I think this may be Colson Whitehead's sort of uh, synthesis of the two um, uh, the two poles here. That it's like we're all on the same wagon train, but maybe maybe uh, the black people are on their own wagon. Yeah. Um, which again is a is a debate to have that I'm certainly not qualified to really have an opinion on i think right um because there's an article in the new york Times, or not new york times uh it's either in the new yorker or in the atlantic recently about clarence thomas who's i believe currently considered the most conservative uh judge on the supreme court um or one Mm -hmm. of one of the most conservative ones um but who back in the day in the 70s and 80s i want to say was considered an extremely liberal judge and how um the argument of this article was that he didn't change any of his positions the political landscape sort of skewed around him interesting um and he uh is one person i i've heard an interview with muhammad ali as another person uh, sort of pointing up the idea that um they these there's a certain strain i guess in in black intellectual argument that um black people should have their own community and um be be their own their own culture um and again it's it's a debate to have that i don't necessarily feel like i need to have an opinion on without knowing a lot more about right, the debate right. itself yeah but the ending of this book as well as some other comments because there are some comments on the valentine farm and in a few other places in the book that yeah. s- could be interpreted as supporting this position and um that's what this this ending pointed up to me um and again you know i i there, there's a history of people with my skin color feeling that they need to answer this question. Mm. Um, and I, I super want to avoid trying to answer this question. Um, I just want to sort of say that it, it occurs to me as a question and I don't know if um, it's, it's more about the, uh, uh historical nature of this story that because that certainly made a lot of sense in an era when um there was a lot sort of more open american land that you could have sort of a valentine farm or even a a city or colony of of you know black people that was sort of its own um at least somewhat circumscribed community um, today feels like it's a lot more we're a lot more just inherently integrated but again yeah. ma- i i started these episodes talking about how i grew up in a 98 percent white community so maybe i just don't know what i'm talking about here right okay so again all i'm trying to do is listen to
0: yeah what this book says and <laughs> um how it express how me. i heard it yeah yeah how you heard it how i heard it how we heard it we are one um. <laughs> i appreciate that <laughs> um so you know i'm i i would love to
1: to be corrected on this or be argued with yes um,
0: this 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 is one of those things that is easily a beautiful dialogue yeah um and that i think is the greatest benefit that could be had from this yeah absolutely book. For us, anyway. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I I, think that's maybe as good a place as any to end Yeah. on this. G- yeah. I mean, we could go on and on and on we about this. We could do this. two to f- five more episodes. Yes, this. but um, I think we need to cut it off here. Um, we'll, again, invite anyone who wants to, to discuss this more to, to talk to us about it. But um, yeah. at this point, uh, we need to, to conclude our episode. So um once again no one lost they didn't so uh we go on to to ratings um so we we're we're gonna rate the scotch in the next set of episodes we'll talk about that then so right now we are going to rate the book so ethan rating buy it buy it (laughs) buy it also buy it okay i'm glad you said that because i was gonna say buy it because this book i am so happy to have this book I'm going to put it on my bookshelf. I'm going to read it again, probably very soon. Uh, and I'm probably gonna read more of Colson Whitehead as a result of reading this book. I am definitely going um, to read more of Colson the, Whitehead. The Nickel Boys looks very interesting. He's got some other
1: books. There's out there another too. one. Um, yeah, off of off of the topics that we discussed. I just can't remember what it was called. Oh, The Noble Hustle, mm. in which a magazine and this is like nonfiction slash humor is the category. Right. Gave Colson Whitehead $10,000 to play at the World Series of Poker in Las Vegas. Right. Um, and it becomes apparently the sort of existential journey for him. Um But right. it, it just sounds like a, an amazing book. I don't he know if is. it has anything to do with any of the themes discussed but on these couple episodes. the but thing but is, I his sort of prose is amazing.
0: Yeah. And we didn't just, really talk a whole lot about it. We hinted at it. But his prose is amazing. Yeah. And just his... You know he's just one of these
1: people. I would love to sit in a room and hear talk about anything, no matter whether I disagreed
0: with him or not. I'm sure I would. He would. He would express everything he said beautifully. That's the thing. Um, So yes, I'm also saying buy it, buy it, buy it, and buy it. Uh, Yes. All right. Um, Pairing here with uh, with the the book and this Benromach Ten Years Speyside single malt. Um, Well, what do you think, Ethan? I'm gonna say. I'm gonna say. Probably
1: pretty good match. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, pairing scotch with anything so inherently American is, like, <laughs> a little bit wrong. Like, we should be drinking probably rye for the period. Sure. If not bourbon. Um, but at the same time, like, there's a... And without getting too into my scotch review that I'll save for a couple episodes right from now. There's a very, uh, smoky element to this, um, that, like, just... Uh, The taste, the idea of like the taste of being in an underground room with a Ah. with a steam engine chugging towards Uh you, uh um, seems very uh, apropos. Sure, if that's not too cheesy to say.
0: Sure, Um, I'm also going to say pretty good match. Um, I only because I find it difficult to say perfect match. Yeah, um, yeah. and that's, you know, uh, when I, when I went searching for a scotch, I'm going to, you know, give a, a little teaser to when we are going to actually rate the scotches after our next set of episodes. Uh, I wanted something that would hurt. <laughs> um, and so this, this, this measures up to, to the, 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 category of this book. And, uh, so I think it is a, 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 pretty good match. So I would say, go ahead and drink, drink Ben Romach 10 years, uh, along with reading the Underground Railroad. All right, so next time, uh, gentle listener, we are going to be reading Oklahoma by R.A. Lafferty, as you already know. So read along with us for that. Uh, give us your feedback on that book and on the Underground Railroad. Go to the contact section of tapestryradio.org. Go to Twitter, at roomwithscotch. Go to Facebook, the Tapestry Radio Tap House. Uh, we'll let you in as long as you request to join and you aren't a white supremacist, as we already said. Uh, we'll also do your homework. We don't promise to do it well. We do condone plagiarism because it's funny. Uh, just go to our website, tapestryradio.org, scotchcast. The form is right there near the top. Uh, scroll down just a little bit, you'll find it. Um, we'll do our best. Uh, we'll try our best to make it fun. Um, and uh, then turn it into your teacher. It'll be funny. If you like this podcast, check out our other shows on the Tapestry Radio Network, like Intermission, the Backstage Drama Podcast, and Pokemon Rollout, the uh, Pokemon Tabletop United Actual Play RPG Podcast. Uh, Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, wherever else you get your podcasts, Google Play. Uh, We might be on Stitcher. I think we're on Stitcher. Radio? I think I tried to get us on our radio. I don't know if we're there or not, but, you know, (laughs) wherever you find us. All those different places uh, because we aren't paying to advertise so other people can find us based on how many reviews we get and how many people you specifically tell about our podcast. So tell people that you enjoyed listening to two white people talk about the Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead and uh, see what they think. <laughs> um, yes. So, Ethan, where can they find you? I am at Bjartlett on Twitter.
1: That's uh, I have a web comic called Porter Girl Detective, that if you like fairy tales, uh, film noir, uh, or stories about 12-year-old detectives,
0: you will probably <laughs> like that. It's at pinporterdetective.com. Mm-hmm um find me on twitter and instagram at m-g-l-i-l-i-e-n-t-h-a-l and check out my various ties uh so with that until next time gentle listener just remember it's our party and we'll cry if we want to especially after we've dug a tunnel but you know what? We don't have to do it, so we're gonna cry for those who do. And also because
1: and Col- Whitehead's prose made us is cry,
0: beautiful. So. And made us cry. And made us cry. So, so Bye.